One of the great benefits from hosting your own podcast is you get to have conversations with very interesting people. Today on the podcast, we have Rick Morris from the Sierra Club here in Rochester. Rick has been in Rochester for the last couple of years and brings an excitement and enthusiasm to uh, environmental and energy production issues that I think is really great. And I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say. He's an interesting guy, and there are lots and lots of interesting progressive people in this community. If you know somebody that would be great to be featured on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Please send us a note on Facebook or however you can get a hold of us. Thank you very much, and enjoy the podcast. All right, so today we have Rick Morris from the Sierra Club, who's a clean energy organizer. Um, And Rick, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about what that means. (laughs) Sure, good question. Um, It's a lot of things. Uh, At its most basic, I work to uh, empower a group of Rochester residents who want to see the city on the pathway to completely clean renewable energy and away from our fossil fuel past. So we figure out ways together uh, to advance that agenda in Rochester while continuing to uh, build our power and build a coalition of diverse uh, nonprofit organizations and interest groups to uh, to ultimately make Rochester the healthiest, most just city that it can be. And are there people in a role like you have throughout the country, throughout the state? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, for for the Sierra Club mm-hmm. in particular, the last I don't know, ten or fifteen years, they've really moved more towards an organizing model instead of a, a top down policy model. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's, I'm just guessing round numbers here, but if there's about 750 Sierra Club staff in the U.S., um, about 200 or so of us are organizers. Okay, so how did Rochester end up having somebody to organize us? Oh, we got lucky. Um, Minnesota, outside of the coasts, Minnesota is one of the strongest Sierra Club states. We have um, about 50,000 folks in the state who who participate with the Sierra Club, whether it's taking online actions or paying dues or going to rallies with us which is really strong for a state of our size. Um, So we have 12 staff in the state, which is a lot, and about half of those are organizers like me. Um, Although I'm the only one who is based uh, out of a city. I mean, so I'm based in in Rochester. I live and work in Rochester. Mm -hmm. Everyone else uh, lives and works in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and then they'll commute to different cities where they're doing work um, once a month or every other week. I assume they're riding their bikes to those things. So <laughs> ideally, ideally, yeah. Or taking the bus. We're we're um, we're very much in support of advancing public infra- public mm-hmm. transportation infrastructure. And I will well. say that Rick came on his bike here to uh, beautiful Kutsky Park today. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a hard day not to. It's very yeah, sure. sunny, just yeah. a mile mile away. Awesome. So tell me more about you. So where are you from? Are you originally from this area or from no. Minnesota? Or? No, I like to say that Rochester recently adopted me over okay. the last couple of years. Um, I'm from New Jersey originally. I went to school outside of Chicago for a while and more school in New Jersey. Um, and then after uh, grad school, I was dating a girl and uh, she, <laughs> she got a job out here. And so I finished up um, a job I was working in New Jersey and I followed her out here. That was a Let's see. Thanks. It was the day after Thanksgiving, 2014. So I'm going oh, okay. on about two and a half years in yeah, town. Yeah. And that relationship still thriving? Or? Yeah, yeah. I'm still oh, here. Cool. She's still here. <laughs> We're still together. That's awesome. What what grad school and college did you go to? Um. So 
interestingly, I guess for someone in my position, I've only studied religion um, oh. in academia. So I went to uh, Wheaton College, which is kind of known as a conservative evangelical school outside of mm-hmm. Chicago. Um, and then I went to uh, a Divinity School at Princeton Theological Seminary out in New Jersey, which okay. is where I'm from, a little closer to home. Sure. Um, yeah, and then, let's see, and then that was just about two and a half, going on three years ago. So left. so how did you end up with the Sierra Club versus doing something within religion? Oh, that's, that's a long-winding story. Um, I got time. <laughs> let's see. I think that goes back to... To Wheaton College, uh, ironically enough, um, in in the midst of the school, there was uh, a tiny environmental student group led by a wonderful wonderful professor, Dr. Fred Van Dyke. He's the executive director of Al Sabo Institute now up in Michigan. Um, but he really connected the the drive to do something good for the world that's in a lot of students who go to religious colleges to um, to environmental ad- activism and advocacy. And he happened to know a guy named Bill McKibben when I was in school, and he had him stop by and talk to just a group of four of us from this little environmental club. Um, and so there, there were just these, these moments along the way of just extraordinary individuals and extraordinary groups um, that I, I was lucky enough to be a part of that slowly... Uh, in, in religious circles, we'd say planted the seed, and then it got watered, and then it sprouted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess slowly, slowly built built up to where I wanted to pursue this path. So I don't mean this. I don't mean this in a corny way. But do you see your work within you know the environment as religious in some way, or um, I'm sure you've thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the analogy I usually use is that um, I've been trained to be a pastor. That's my mm-hmm. professional training. And the work of an organizer overlaps very, very significantly with the work of a pastor. Um, so I work with um, a group of individuals who voluntary, voluntarily associate around some shared values, and they mm-hmm. want to act on those shared values. And together we, we try to create pathways to act on those values mm-hmm. and to create a positive impact in, in our community. Um, and I think when I describe it that way, you can kind of see some of the overlap sure, yeah. between... Uh, what a church might be doing mm-hmm. as well, or at least the good ones. Wow, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. So based on your experience so far here in Rochester, two and a half years, um, has all that been devoted to the Sierra Club, or were you doing something else before? Or um, So I've been with the Sierra Club just about a year and a half now. Okay. Um, when I first moved here, um, I was... I was actually involved more in, in your line of business. I was working at Grand Rounds Brewery, oh, uh, slinging beers. Okay. Um, and then I found a job with the Land Stewardship Project, mm-hmm. uh, which is another Minnesota-based environmental nonprofit. Um, back in New Jersey, my one of my last jobs before I came out was uh, I was directing the development of a small nonprofit. So I had that skill set and I wanted to use it. Um, and I, I found a role in the Land Stewardship Project and I found a way into the environmental activism scene that way. Mm-hmm. And then, um, as fortune would have it, I was volunteering with the Sierra Club here in town, and my predecessor um, uh, pursued another opportunity, um, and we still talk a little bit and uh, coordinate a bit on, on projects in Rochester. Um, but then the, the job opened up, and it was, it was more or less my dream job, mm-hmm. and um, she, she thought I would be a good candidate, and mm-hmm. I guess the rest is history. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. So, what have you accomplished so far? 
year and a half in the Sierra Club uh, role here. What do, you, what do you think you've accomplished? Yeah, uh, I, I just like to rephrase that of uh, what we accomplished. Uh, <laughs> sure, exactly. Because it's mostly I'm I'm trying to run after our our volunteer leaders and our officers who are are the real activists and the real backbone mm-hmm. and creative force in the Sierra Club. Um, uh, a few victories we'd like to talk about is the DMC, the Destination Medical Center Corporation Board, mm-hmm. adopted what what we're calling a sustainability resolution in April of last year. Um, so that was that was the the first victory we had when I came on board, um, and uh, since then a couple of highlights that we've been involved in um, the DMC board again as well as the Rochester, the city of Rochester hired a sustainability manager, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin Bright. He's been on the job for a few months now. Um, so that's a an, um, that was an initiative we were pressing very hard, and it was a, a top mm-hmm. line uh, agenda item for us. And then just uh, about know, a week or two ago, the Rochester um, uh, Public Utilities, RPU, uh, they voted to uh, begin a community solar program with our, with our power provider called Simpa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been another long, long-standing goal to be, uh, bring community solar into Rochester. Could you tell me a little bit more about that program? Because I heard a little bit about it, but I don't know how it oh, works sure. or how, how could I use it. Sure. Um, so... When people uh, hear solar, they tend to think of a homeowner, usually who's a little wealthier, pays some company to come in and slap up uh, solar panels on. Like the a Michael Wojak. Exactly. And then get sued by your neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because okay. it's unsightly. Right. Although <laughs> increasingly, uh, it's it's being viewed um, as a as a, a property value increaser sure, for a neighborhood yeah, as yeah. attitudes change. But yeah, so someone pays for solar panels to be on their house, and mm-hmm. then for the rest of the solar panels life, uh, they have lower utility bills or negative utility bills and they're making a buck off the system, um, which is great. And everyone should do that if they can. I highly um, encourage it. Although there's some barriers to entry into that, right? If you don't have a lot of money and a lot of capital, you can't afford that. If you're not a homeowner, you can't do it. If you are a homeowner and you have capital, but you just have shade, you can't do that. So what community solar does is it just builds an offsite big field of solar panels and then individual renters or homeowners or just people who live in the area can then purchase or subscribe to a portion of that. So you get all the benefits of having um, a solar panel, except it's you get the economy of scale. So more is being built, so it's a little cheaper per unit. Um, you only have to purchase what you can afford. Um, and then the utility company does all of the administration costs, so they'll just take off the money from your utility bill every month that mm-hmm. the solar panel generates. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so a couple of questions that have been in my mind for a while about uh, energy, especially in Rochester. Why, you know, we have our own municipal utility, mm-hmm. RPU, um, which is, you know, controls uh, access to electricity, water, sewer, um, and uh, natural gas, I think, through their contract. With somebody, is that right? Uh, more or less. More or less. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So some details. But. So we're in a, an area where uh, of the world which has some of the windiest uh, um, areas. The what is the ridge that is out here? The I can't remember what it's called, but there's like a um, basically from here all the way to the South Dakota. There's a, mm-hmm. a, a ridge that has tons of wind energy yeah, if you, generation. Yeah, if you drive out west potential. just a few miles, you can yes. see the fields and fields of the windmills. Exactly, and we have um, the solar potential as you're seeing now. We're starting to see some solar uh, 
fields essentially that are producing energy. You know, I brought up at one point, um, I think to the RPU board or someone that, you know, we seem like we're positioned well to be completely off the grid, at least electrically as a community in a way that other places maybe wouldn't be. Um, and then you read, and, and the answer is no, that's not, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. And I think the mayor put out some proclamation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He wanted by like 2030 to have like 50% or something of our, and I don't remember exactly what his proclamation oh, that, was. That's our favorite proclamation. Yeah, he he set the goal for 100% renewable by oh, 100%. 2031. Okay, yeah. good. Not soon enough, in my opinion. I uh-huh, think that's uh-huh. kind of a weak proclamation for a guy who is probably not going to see it happen. But it seems like he's been in a position to help push that. And, and besides the proclamation, I haven't really seen much out of it. Now the RPU board coming up with their community solar seems like a positive step, but you know, RPU at one point was generating lots of its power from sure. dams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we still have a hydroelectric dam. Mm-hmm. I think it produces one to one and a half megawatt standing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So why is it going to take till 2031? Mm-hmm. Is that actually even going to happen? And what would we have to do to make it happen more more quickly? Because I look at, wasn't London recently in the news for having generated 100% of its electricity from sure, renewables sure. in the last, uh, like, in a 24-hour period? If London yeah, can do it, see, I've been to London. Like I, Southern I, Bavaria did it, yeah. Spain did it for a while, Costa Rica did mm-hmm. it for a while. And if those places can do it, and they're a lot more dense than we are, mm-hmm. and they don't have the access to all this surrounding farmland to generate power with... How come we aren't doing it? Sure. Um, okay. Are you ready to put on your policy wonk hat with me? Sure. Yeah. For a while, yeah. there's there's some. Um, uh, there's as long some as it's deep, simple deep, enough that I can yeah, actually understand it. There's some it, deep so. uh, policy uh, details that don't often mm-hmm. get talked about. Um, uh, one of the the very simple ones is that legally our hands are tied until 2031, which is why the an hour is the city of Rochester. The city of Rochester's RPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a long, long-term, about 40, 50-year um, contract, we being RPU, which is a public utility, with a power provider called SIMPA, Southern, Municip- Southern Minnesota Municipal Power Agency. Um, that was set up back in the 70s when it made a lot of sense for 18 small towns and municipalities to band together and to buy into a coal plant together. So that's Sherco 3 um, in Becker, Minnesota, north of the Twin Cities, a little west. Um, But the stipulation of that contract is that RPU, or Rochester, has to buy about 216 megawatts of power from SIMPA until 2030. And if we build our own capacity beyond that, we're in breach of contract, heavy fines, lawsuits. um, It would would be very, very expensive at the very least to even test out that scenario. not to mention the last 10 or 12 years of lawsuits that RPU has already been involved in with, with SIMPA. And Which has for, cost millions of dollars yeah, to the city yeah. of Rochester. So, so we have um, a limited appetite for, uh, for litigation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, once 2030 comes, uh, RPU currently um, is on a trajectory to, uh, to leave SIMPA, to just operate independently and to build our own power supply and pick our own uh, power supply portfolio from from the grid, as we call it. Um, so that's where a big opportunity is. Um, and that's why the year that we always talk about in Rochester is 2030 when it ends or 2031 when we're really independent. Um, and uh, uh, to give RPU uh, good marks, credit where credit is due, their infrastructure plan that leads up and past that date 
does have them building about 150 megawatts of wind, so taking advantage of that wind resource, um, as well as 25, 30 uh, megawatts of solar. Okay, so how much, how many megawatts of energy is Rochester using right sure, now? Sure, great because question. Because I, I, it just you say these numbers, that doesn't mean yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, the city of Rochester will peak, so that's like the hottest day. All the air conditioners are on. Everyone comes home and and turns on their dishwashers. We'll peak at about three hundred megawatts. Um, on a regular day, like right now, it's balmy. Most people are at work. We're we're right around two sixteen, two seventeen. Okay. Um, so what we're buying from Simpo plus the couple of megawatts that we have from our dam that you mentioned um, and from our own natural gas generators um, is supplying those extra few. Okay. Um, so, so that's the current scenario. So, so there is a plan to increase our renewable portfolio, but the rest of the plan is to replace most of what we get from Simpo with big gas turbines. So we're on track to remain completely mired in the extraction industries, the fossil fuel industries. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So you're saying you're giving RPU high marks. I'm giving them credit. You're giving too. them credit for replacing the SEMPA contract with gas generators? Uh, no. I'm confused. My, my, whole, my whole job in town, or a lot of my job in town, is to work with people to decrease the amount of gas mm-hmm. and to push an aggressive renewable portfolio. What I'm giving the marks for is that they are investing in 150 megawatts of, of wind. But we're going to also need another 150 to meet peak demand. And then but 12 meet, years, we exactly. might need another 100 megawatts. We don't even know, right? Exactly. Um, so, so the if people work, start using electric cars, for instance, and things like that, it could exactly, increase yeah. the, so, the demand. So the, the argument you'll hear from utility companies is our number one job is to keep the lights on. And when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we need that, uh, that ready-on capacity that's provided by things like gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the dominant argument that we're fighting against. Um, and we could point to, like you mentioned, places around the world where they figured that out, at, mm-hmm. least for, uh, at least for days or months of time. Some of the things that we could do that require some creativity and aren't as as well tested, but are being increasingly tested at the utility scale, are things like microgrids. Uh, there was just a, an article, um, I think it was on Strong Towns or Midwest Energy News Today, of um, a town, I think on the southeast, where uh, all the power went down, but they had developed what's called a microgrid. And this, this one block of 100 homes and 50 businesses, their lights stayed on because they had renewables and they had... Um, and they had batteries mm-hmm. to to back to store the power and release it, um, and they all all of their solar panels and all of their windmills um, were were tied into a local grid. So when everything else shut down, they could stay up. Um, so that's that's one story I I like to use to say that we're not just worried about when the sun doesn't shine or when the wind doesn't blow, but we're also worried about when. Um, a, a weather event knocks down the power lines that are coming mm-hmm. from Becker, Minnesota. Right? Mm-hmm. What happens when we don't have access to that coal? Or what happens when you know, the power lines coming from the west get knocked down by mm-hmm. flood? Um, then it's going to be only the folks that have solar panels, that have batteries, mm-hmm. and only the institutions that already have those microgrids. Um, so that'd be like Mayo. They're still up if everything else is down. Mm-hmm. They have um, generators, I assume. They have, they have their generators, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's no reason why that can't be rolled out 
to benefit the rest of us who live here. So do you think that it makes more sense to look at RPU as a um, an intermediary for large-scale energy production and then bringing it to your house? Or does it make sense to look more at those microgrids? Because I like the idea of you know things being as local as possible. And if I could know that my neighborhood was going to be able to survive whatever kind of you know catastrophe happens there'd be some solace in that and i also like the idea that it's generated really you know locally and doesn't have to have a bunch of power lines running through people's uh farms that don't want it etc sure yeah um from from my perspective right now we don't have to make that choice mm-hmm. that's a that's a, at least a decade away from from really being a pressing issue um, I think we see a lot of advantages of combining both right now. We have increasingly um, what we call distributed energy, so that's people with solar panels on their roofs, that's uh, local energy projects like community solar or small wind farms. Uh, so distributed energy has a lot to say for it in terms of um, affordability, resiliency, localizing the grid, and capturing the benefits of energy production. So right now we don't really benefit from our energy production, we just buy it from somewhere else. But if we bring it locally, those are jobs. That's people getting checks. Uh, that's invigorating the local economy. But on the other hand, uh, we still need the power lines, right? Mm-hmm. We still want to be able to purchase energy when it's cheap from the big grid um, to provide low-cost energy to folks who, at this stage, aren't able to participate in you know, putting on their own solar panels mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. Um, and as far as energy efficiency, having a having a grid that's centrally managed does have some advantages. Um, there's things that a lot of cities, even in Minnesota, are trying out that's called um, demand management. Um, so, for instance, you give, it's a little scary, but you give the government or the utility control over your dishwasher or control over your air conditioner. So then at those peak times, when everyone turns on their dishwashers and their air conditioners at the same time, uh, instead, they're able to... to to turn one on for 15 minutes and turn your neighbors on for the next 15 minutes, right? So you're still getting those same, the same benefit of washing your dishes, the same benefit of cooling your house. It was just done in a smarter way that reduces that overall demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, if we implement things like that from the utility side, then all of a sudden that dream of 100% renewable energy, now all of a sudden we only have to get to 70% renewable energy because mm-hmm. we've become that much more efficient. Sure. My experience with the RPU board, uh, I've only been to a couple meetings, but you know, you said that their number one goal is to make sure that that electricity turns on when you need it, mm-hmm. right? It seemed to me that an equal goal, or at least number two, was to make sure that the cost is as low as possible. Sure. And that seems like it's an inhibitor for them to do things that can be a little bit more innovative and, and, and thoughtful uh, going forward. Are they going to actually follow through with these infrastructure changes? Because if that's their goal, to have low-cost energy, these take large investments, and RPU hasn't made large investments in um, production in the past, not, not recently in the mm-hmm. past. Um, do you think they're going to do that? And how will becoming energy independent as a community, how will that impact prices? Uh, great question. Some of, some of the answer is it remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the answer we can look to history. Uh, right. So one thing I'll say for RPU 
they follow through on their plans. Um, mm-hmm. So I have great faith that what's written into their plans right now in their 2040 infrastructure plan, they 100% plan on doing. Um, so I think we can bank on those 150 megawatts of solar okay. at the very least. Um, as far as increasing price, um, the price of renewable energy generation has been dropping dramatically, such to the point that uh, current wind is cheaper than coal. Mm-hmm. So the more wind that we have, actually, the more rates will go down. Um, on the other hand, in terms of these infrastructure uh, investments that RPU has to make, they have, they've done two things recently. Number one, uh, they set a new policy of increasing their cash reserves in order to start, uh, start building out, having a war chest, if you will, to start building out their own infrastructure mm-hmm. once the contract with Simpa expires. And number two... Um, they, I'd say they aren't as afraid of infrastructure investment as, as you might uh, think. So right now, uh, they're well, well past breaking ground. They're, they're actually constructing the building of a new gas generator plant. Uh, it's called a peaker plant. So it's just supposed to turn on when we peak to that 300 megawatts to make mm-hmm. up for um, uh, that gap of electricity. Um, and that's about a 60 to $70 million project um, that they financed on the bond market, uh, along with some cash reserves. Uh, so, so I think the ability is there. Um, they, they're only going to do projects that get returns on investment, right? So they have a really smart team of, of accountants and financiers mm-hmm. working for them. And, and right now, the, the bond market, as I'm told, is pretty favorable for those sorts of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think they're scared of that right now. On the other hand, um, something you'll, you'll notice on your RPU bill is that you have fixed fees or flat fees, as well as your per kilowatt hour or as well as your electricity charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the one pickle uh, that, that, we, um, that we are running up against. Uh, and it's, it's, going to be, it's going to take some figuring out in the years ahead. So how, as customers are generating their own electricity and RPU isn't getting all that revenue from electricity, how do they keep the lines up? And how do they keep... Uh, their employees paid. Um, so that's that's something that's going to be worked out in the coming decades, um, not just in Rochester, but pretty much anywhere electricity is sold mm-hmm. and people also have access to solar and wind. Yeah. So, okay, so you have colleagues all over the state and around the, the country that are working on similar issues. Mm-hmm. When you guys get together, what what do you say about Rochester? I mean, and how does it mm-hmm. compare to other places? Yeah, uh, I feel like uh, I'm the luckiest organizer uh, in the world mm-hmm. because Rochester is such a dynamic community. Uh, as you know right now, we're, we're growing um, at, at a fairly steady rate, but our infrastructure investment is growing at an exponential rate. So the DMC, which we mentioned a couple of times, mm-hmm. billions of dollars pouring in to rebuild Rochester. Theoretically. Theoretically. Um, but <laughs> as those, at least as those plans are being made that that give an outline to our destiny, a small group of concerned citizens can have an outsized impact for decades to come. Um, So right now, Rochester, the city itself, is doing all of its comprehensive plans. Uh, There's an energy action plan in there, which is pretty great. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, if that gets passed on June 5th at the next uh, uh, upcoming city council meeting, the, the, the group of concerned citizens on the Energy Commission who worked on that with a pair of with a, a few consultants and who advocated for that for the last few years, 
they're gonna they're gonna see their work pay off for a generation at least in Rochester. Um, so that's exciting. In in a lot of towns and cities, well, in a, in a lot of towns, you're fighting for incremental change because you have super limited budgets. Um, in a lot of big cities like Minneapolis, there's such an established power structure that even a thousand, ten thousand Sierra Club activists and uh, and the coalition they they're only one voice in a, in a vast multitude up at the hill at the St. Paul legislature, for instance, these past mm-hmm. few weeks. But here in Rochester, you know, we have uh, about 100 or so folks who will show up to things. And we have another group of about 25 folks who um, who are at all the organizing meetings and making plans and decisions. And they're able to change policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a... It's so really exciting that that, time. Do you think that model could work around other issues that you know people want to advocate for, or you know related to, especially growth? It seems like growth mm-hmm. is really the biggest issue in our community. Um, what you're talking about around renewables and electrical generation is really related to growth as well, mm-hmm. uh, and how that how that happens. We're going to grow. Our electrical grid is going to be changing over the next twenty years. How does it change? How could how could other groups use um, that model, that community organizing model, that don't have the Sierra Club behind them sure. and 750 staff people across the country yeah. and um, paid staff? Do you think that there's a way to do that? Yeah, uh, there is. And I will say that um, the Sierra Club in particular is late to the organizing game, and we're only in it because of very hard-won lessons um, and dearly paid-for lessons in the 90s. Um, so I'll answer your question, and then I'll give some background. I would say organizing is the only model I would use to affect social change. Um, political change, too? Political change, social change, mm-hmm. yeah. Because, um, frankly, if you're not involving the people who are going to be most affected by these policies in making the decisions, um, you're going to be ignorant. Um, there's going to be unintended negative consequences, and there's going to be a general sense of disenfranchisement and disillusion with the system. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone actually having unforeseen negative impacts on people's lives. Uh, so for the Sierra Club, going way back to 125, we're celebrating our 125th year anniversary, which on the one hand is amazing, but on the other hand means we have a lot of pretty horrible shit in our background. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it was founded uh, by John Muir, who hung out with the likes of Teddy Roosevelt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our original work was conservation of lands, which for folks at that time often meant like kicking Mexican people and kicking Native American people off of land so wealthy white hunters could enjoy it for a month out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was the way in which we did a lot, right? And so that's a, a really horrible but unfortunately commonplace example of how really well-intentioned folks um, making changes purely from the top down uh, can really negatively impact. And And that kind of thing is still happening in in Central and South America and I'm sure Africa and other places where they're trying to conserve land. And and, uh, and to do that, they're, Mm -hmm. you know, kicking out people that have, you know, utilized that land for their livelihood. Definitely. And then, so the... The turning event for us didn't happen until about 100 years after that, uh, where a group of indigenous organizations, um, uh, Mexican-American organizations, Latino organizations, primarily in the Southwest, but also connected throughout the U.S., um, particularly connected through faith communities throughout the U.S., 
wrote a letter to the Big Green, um, the 10 Big Green nonprofits, of which Sierra Club uh, was a leading member. And they said, we like your spirit, but what you're doing is racist and it's um, dis- disenfranchising low-income people and it's creating these generations of, uh, of poverty. Um, so if you don't stop what you're doing, we're going to start working against you instead of working against our usual folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of those nonprofits started to listen and started doing the really hard work of institutional change, um, which is still going on and which still is not perfect. Um, but it led to things like fighting in northern Minneapolis to shut down the uh, trash incinerator that would have never been a Sierra Club project before, but now since there's this new ear of, hey, let's actually listen to the people in the neighborhoods that, <laughs> that we're advocating for, um, we're seeing that environmental justice and social justice are really one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's this trash incinerator in northern Minneapolis that's just poisoning people who live on the block, who are all black, who are all uh, Native American and Hispanic, and you just have like, one out of two kids has asthma, right? Like autism mm-hmm. off the charts. All these um, horrible things going on. Um, and that's, that's a classic example of the, the wealthier folks just moving an environmental problem onto the backs of less wealthy folks and less powerful folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was a turning point in, in Minnesota for the Sierra Club as well as nationally for the Sierra Club of kind of changing the way we fight, changing why we're fighting and, and with whom we're fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that's the only work worth doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say in, in Rochester, we're still working to, to have those intersectional relationships and to have those intersectional um, alliances with different organizations. Um, I will say, I think what we're advocating for is going to benefit low-income people in particular, and it's going to make a healthier environment for us all. So how's it going to help low-income people? Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, community solar. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about energy equity, which is a, a fairly new term, um, because uh, mostly you're used to just paying for electricity. Right? Mm-hmm. But energy equity means you, you have some, some sort of capital in the system that can pay you back. Um, so... If you can set up a community solar model where folks with little with uh, little to no capital can buy in and then over time uh, get the benefits of it, it's completely changing a household economy. Um, whereas uh, if folks are spending 10%, 15% of, of their um, net income on energy, it's really limiting what, the, what they can spend the, money, the rest of their money on. So if you, can, uh, if you can chip away at that and use energy to actually... Uh, lower those bills or even turn those around and be uh, an income generating source, um, then you can, I think, vastly improve some some financial outlooks for families. Mm-hmm. So another kind of line of questioning that I've been thinking about is, um, are you a millennial? I think you probably I are. I think I am, yeah. yeah. You are. 89. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. Okay. Um, I was actually, I graduated from high school in 89, so... Um, the work that you're doing is um, actually a lot of political conversations are, mm-hmm. are kind of starting to focus around millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers. And um, the work you're doing is is innovative and is something that probably could have been done a long time ago. Um, there were efforts in the 70s to try to, to 
become more energy independent mm -hmm. that didn't really work. I think that the, a lot of those ideas were repealed by later uh, political groups. How do you um, see your role as a millennial in the community and, and the fact that nearly all the decision makers you probably work with are not even Gen Xers, they're probably baby uh -huh. boomers. How does that I think there's a couple of Xers play out? on the council right now. There's a couple, and yeah. Um, but, but most, I mean literally most, including staff members of the different departments and things that need to make these decisions, how, do you, how does that play out? I mean, have you thought about mm. that at all? Um, a little bit. I think sometimes, I think it's often the case that the older generations look at the younger generations Right, and see some, some vast differences. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the older generations yeah. and the younger generations, yeah. and I see vast differences both ways. Yeah. And, and I also see that, you know, the, the baby boomers, there's less and less all the time. Millennials, there's more and more all the time. But um, politically activist uh, millennials are, are not as common. It doesn't seem like, and maybe that's just partly because of life cycles and people get involved in families and other things. And, yeah, yeah. And uh -huh. well, a lot of us, I'm very lucky to be paid for, for what I do, but mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my colleagues who are in the same life stage, uh, they're, they're trying to pay rent and pay student loans, and that doesn't mm -hmm. leave a lot of time mm -hmm. besides having two jobs um, to, to do the sort of things I'm involved in. Um, so how do, you reach, how do you reach the baby, the decision makers? How, yeah. What's the, what are the conversations like? Um... Let's see. Well, well, first of all, I have to say for for my for the group of uh, activists that I work with, um, I say we're pretty much split between uh, baby boomers. We have a lot of uh, retirees uh, that we work with, um, as well as folks kind of in the beginning to mid of their career, so Xers. Um, there's there's just a handful of millennials that that. Uh, that drive the work uh, with me in Rochester as far as Sierra Club activities go. Um, so to give credit where credit's due, again, um, these goals of getting Rochester 200% renewable energy is being driven by the boomer generation and the uh, X generation. Um, I'm just there to help make it more powerful and to do some of the, the boring work that people need to get paid to do to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to get done. Um, I would say... One of the big parts of, of my job is to talk about vision. Um, and I think that's something that cuts across generational lines. Let's imagine a future together. What do you want to see in it? What are you terrified of in that future? And once we come to something of a consensus, all right, let's mark out, let's mark out a path. Let's mark out um, a couple of steps in between now and the future that we want to see. Um, and I think when you frame it that way, there's there's going to be different emphases, mm -hmm. you know, in in what people are concerned about. For instance, a boomer might talk about their grandkids, mm -hmm. whereas a millennial is going to talk about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we we want we want to live um, we want to live without being afraid of the environment and what it's going to do to our health or our kids' health, um, and we want to live. Um, we want to have creature comforts and we don't want to, um, you know, step on our neighbor, um, mm -hmm. by having those. Um, so, so I think there's, there's actually a lot of harmony, um, across generations that way. Um, I'd say the, the one, the one biggest generational difference, um, is, um, 
for folks of my generation and younger who are kind of coming into the world and who tend to be more transient than the generations who have come before, um, we, we see the world as more plastic, more malleable. Um, sure, we can change it. We just need to get enough people together, build the political will, and we can do anything. Um, where I think kind of the older you are and the more you've kind of experienced bureaucratic pushback, um, uh, the more the more you're just likely to be a little bit more jaded about the process. Um, maybe we're not so so from the older generation. Maybe they'll they'll say, "Oh, we're probably not going to turn over our entire way of being." But here are some ways we can work within the system. Um, so something in the Sierra Club we've done is we have eight officers um, that guide our work. So we have two chairs uh, who are kind of the the presidents of the local club, uh, media outreach officers. Uh, social connections officers, uh, but what we've done is we've paired um, we've paired off those officerships. So we have one older member and one younger member um, to to try to get both that that generational wisdom as as well uh, with that kind of quixotic we can change the world. We just have mm-hmm. to go out and do it, um, and that's worked for us really well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, long, long answer to no, it's <laughs> to a simple question. Well, and, and I don't think it is a simple question. I think it's one of the fundamental questions, kind of, of our time, and probably of every time, is is as generations kind of, you know, butt up against each other or work together or however you, um, however you want to phrase it. I just you can't help but notice that the decision makers are from one generation mm-hmm. and the agitators are from a different generation in, in large part. And how how is that going to play out? I, I don't think. Uh, um, I'm not, I just, I don't know the answer. I think it's an interesting question. So, um, another question for you, if you have to give a, a, a rating, so like mm-hmm. a, a, a grade, A to F okay. for a number of different groups in town. Oh no, this sounds like a fraught question. It's fraught Bring it for on. sure. And, uh, you know, acknowledging that with as with any kind of grading system, mm-hmm. you can always improve or mm-hmm. get worse. So, uh, how would you rate, uh, the County board? as it relates to environmental work that you're doing? Uh, with the county board, I think back to the great floods that I've heard about and for that um, organizational lift between the city and the county where we redid our whole flood system, right? Mm-hmm. And we haven't had really bad flooding downtown. Um, other than that, I don't know a ton about what's going on at the county level. Well, they have um, the, the, the incinerator for garbage, which you brought sure, up earlier sure. as a negative, so I don't mm-hmm. know how ours is here. Is that something that we should be concerned about? Um have to give, again, I feel like this is a refrain for me, credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Olmsted County um, Environmental Services is uh, headed by John Helmers, who is an environmentalist at heart and through and through. Um, and he will always bring up, whenever you ask him about this, that we are running a state-of-the-art facility, which is very different than what they had in North Minneapolis that was just spewing these horrible chemicals into the air and the ground. Um, there's not a lot of population that lives right by it. Um, and... There are fewer greenhouse gas emissions released from that plant than if we were to put all that garbage just in the ground. Sure. Um, so that sounds like a pretty good grade. On the other hand, on the other hand, we don't want to create a market for disp- a disposable society, mm-hmm. right? We don't want to um, incentivize trash and we don't want to come into a situation where we need to burn things in order to make the checkbook black at the end Mm -hmm. of the day um so that's mixed for me yeah 
Okay, so you're not willing to give a grade to that that group. It sounds like. How about um, RPU? Um, oh, okay. I don't want to. <laughs> let me, as from what I know, um, let me give them a B. A B. That's not bad. From what I know. From what you know. So it could be, but it sounds like you're pretty high on RPU. Oh, I actually, uh, I actually feel so like on RPU. So I was talking to talk about the the, uh, the Olmstead, oh, Olmstead. Olmstead uh, Environmental they, they Services. A, oh, they They're doing a, a lot of good stuff. Okay, that's good. Um, I'll also uh, mention that they're always at the Earth Fest. Okay. Um, they have their their green vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing a lot of community advocacy. Sure. Um, and I might even raise their grade to a B plus when I think about they just brought um, what's called a PACE program to oh, yeah. to Olmstead County, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal, phenomenal program. You want to just say what that is? Sure. PACE stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is actually a federal program. It's run by the states and it's administered by the county. So we got a lot of bureaucracy there. Uh, but just uh, maybe six six to nine months ago, um, it came to Olmstead County um, in large part because of leadership of John Helmers and um, Olmstead County Environmental Services Department. And what this program does is it allows um, a business or a nonprofit to get a lump sum from the state in order to do energy efficiency and renewable energy upgrades on the property. Um, so for instance, uh, a bar or a brewery um, can get an energy audit and the energy auditor will say, here's five things to do to make yourself more energy efficient. And if you slap up some solar panels, you can slash your energy bills. Then you take that report to the state and you say, hey, state, we want to do these three out of the five things. Um, and as long as that amount of money is 20% or less of the value of your property, the state will give you that money upfront in order to do those energy efficiency um, and generation projects. And then the really innovative part of the system is that they peg your repayments um, onto your taxes and they pay them below the energy savings. So you get a lump sum, you don't pay it back until you do your taxes, and then the amount that you pay back every year is less than the energy savings. Um, which to me sounds like every business and every nonprofit in Olmsted should be doing this mm-hmm. um, and forthwith. Um, and so so uh, the county has... has brought that to us and they've been championing it has anybody used it yet do you know um i believe there's a couple in the pipeline and there is one project that is is actually moving forward through the application process now it that's the one thing it does take a little bit of time to put together and the first the first few are going to take longer than the the next few sure but i will say throughout throughout the state they've done multi-million dollar projects and it's uh it's well established Mm -hmm. it's just new to us down here that's great so B plus for the energy office at the at the county. What about what about RPU? I mean, C is an average, right? C is an average. Um, pregnant pause. Long long pause here. <laughs> um, I want to grant that their hands are tied again by mm-hmm. this long-standing contract that they simply can't break. Yeah. Um, however, in their long-term infrastructure planning, which extends beyond this, they could be more aggressive to figuring out how we are powered by more renewables and mm-hmm. less fossil fuels. Um, and they could look at some of these emerging technologies such as uh, microgrids, um, yeah. uh, managing household demands, and, uh, and look at battery capacities. Um, so... So I'll give them a C, meaning that they're doing some things pretty well, mm-hmm. um, but they're not—they're not, they're not um, 
they're not leading the nation in the but ways there's a lot no of room for improvement are. it sounds like too and they're moving mm-hmm. in generally the right direction yeah and that's what we're here I, for. you honestly you've changed my mind about it because i was down i've, I've been to a couple of meetings and i was not impressed with how they talked about these issues um it sounds like that's changed and i'm sure it has something to do with the work that you're doing sure um well yeah the the constant pressure that people in Rochester mm-hmm. um, have been providing. As well, we mentioned before um, the mayor's 100% proclamation. Yeah. Um, I don't want to underestimate the the internal cultural change that that has affected inside of like the planning department and mm-hmm. um, the utility uh, company. Um, so something that used to be laughed out is now seriously, is being taken seriously. Okay. Um, so what about uh, DMC? You brought them up. Uh, how are they doing on on energy, uh, renewable energies and uh, sustainability? Sure. Um, I would say that they are one of the leaders in Rochester as far as um, uh, government institutions or para-government institutions. Quasi. Quasi-government <laughs> yeah. institutions. Um, from my read, they, they are more progressive on this issue than our city government is. So mm-hmm. they're pushing the envelope. Um, they... They hired uh, Kevin Bright to be the the sustainability or the energy um, manager, um, and the city is sharing him. But the DMC is is um, providing the bulk of his funding. Mm-hmm. Um, they've passed the uh, sustainability resolution about a year ago, which set some really great goals, like having a net zero district downtown. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole district mm-hmm. that is not producing carbon um, and. And they've um, also, with the city, established something called the Energy Integration Committee, which is bringing different uh, local stakeholders like the city, the utility board, um, uh, uh, the county, and some of the big private players like Mayo uh, to figure out how to build that unseen like underground infrastructure to accomplish some of these energy goals. Um, so really high marks. Um, they, they have a couple... Of plans that are coming up for a vote that have to so some DMC plans have to be approved by the city council. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some really great energy stuff in some of those plans, but you know we have to see how they advocate for that in front of the council when they receive pushback, which they um, haven't done much of that I've seen. They they can't. I believe Patrick Sieb came out for uh, for Uber uh, yeah. a few months ago. So I. Uh, personally, I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of that advocacy mm-hmm. from, you know, we have... It took them a while we to have come nation, around to actually come out for it. It was something yeah. that was sitting out there for a long time and yeah. they kind of left it. So, and But honestly, I, I will say well, I'd like to see that because we do have some nationwide... I'm glad that nationwide, they did, yeah. We, we do have some nationwide experts coming into Rochester all the time to provide guidance. Um, but there's often a hesitancy for the DMC... To say we know the right thing to do, we have done the research. This is what will benefit us, and to say it flat out in that really strong way to city council and decision makers, I think there's there's some fear of kind of getting in the way of the democratic process. So I would like to see more of that. So if they do that, I'll give them an A. Okay. Uh, but we'll see over the next couple of months. Also, it sounds like they're they're they have higher marks, A minus maybe, uh, B plus. Yeah, from from the decisions that have already happened. Mm-hmm. B plus, A minus. Oh, nice. Wow, that's um, great. So that comes to the, the next, the hard one, though. Well, just to, to finish, that yeah. could go down or up. The proof is going to be in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Um, when construction really starts happening, when ground is broken, which 
are they going to enforce the really great sustainability parts of these plans, right? Are yeah. they going to lean on it's local government question. to enforce them? So yeah, I mean, they can go up or down at that There's point. been so much spent and so much time and energy and money spent on plans that, you know, even the original plan that was, I think, 7 or $8 million, $10,000 a page, um, was immediately put on a shelf and said, well, that's just a framework plan. We have yeah. to come up with new plans. So hopefully they will start following through and use their political capital, which I think they have a lot of to accomplish the things that they say they want to do. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the city council. <sighs> Rochester City Council, what's their grade? Hmm. <laughs> I know what I'd get. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'll say almost the entirety of that grade will depend on what happens on June 5th. Mm-hmm. I think that's when this energy action plan I mentioned comes before them. Um. And that will be be the time when they either embrace um, the what ought to be, in my view, and in most of Rochester residents' view, the energy future of the city, mm-hmm. or whether um, they turn it down because it's it's too different, or because um, it would it would create too many uh, logistical hurdles to implement it. Um, so I think I think we're waiting to see there. I want to give them high marks for um, for going in with the DMC to get a sustainability manager, um, Kevin Half Bright time. that I mentioned. One-fifth time for the one city. One-fifth We get him one oh, day okay. of a week. <laughs> However, um, a number of... nothing, I suppose. A number of... kind of their philosophy. <laughs> there you go. But a number of council members also said that um, if this position shows that it's paying off, if it's uh, greening the city operations and saving the money, that they will fully fund a full-time position. And we intend to 100% hold them to that um, mm-hmm. Of course, so, it'd be easier if we, after 2018, had some different city council members on the council. <laughs> Just my personal aside, you don't have to say anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, agreed. so, so, so they have done some good things. Um, yeah. um, I'll say the June 5th vote could bring them to closing in on a territory. Oh, really? Wow. I'll well. Yeah, if okay. they if they embrace the energy action plan, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot there. Um, well, that'll give us a basis to to um, to collect the data that we need yeah. to know how to improve. That'll give us um, different scenarios to work out to uh, to really dramatically leave fossil fuels and, and go towards uh, renewable energy. And so if we'll just, that happens, yeah. because RPU is a public utility. Owned by the city, so the city the council city. runs it. Really, there could yeah. be a lot of really useful directives coming out of city council to RPU um, that can change our infrastructure plan that we mentioned. Interesting. Um, so there's there's a lot of hope, but it does ride on. So really we'll just we'll just hold there. off on that and, and uh, see how it goes uh-huh. on the fifth, which is just a few days away. Yeah. So, so I'll say what great. what my uh, professors used to say to me. Um, I don't give you a grade; you earn them. Um, so they can definitely earn the A okay. here in the next year. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're just about done. I do have a little word association I'd like okay. you to do, um, just kind of for fun. And uh, we'll start with, I'll use the same words I, I've used in the past. So I'm just going to say a word or a phrase, and you just respond quickly with what just comes to mind for you. Okay. Um, first word, underpants. Uh, should be cleaner. <laughs> okay. Um, your favorite grocery store. Uh, People's Food Co-op. And why? Um, this sounds cliche, 
but I like walking in when everyone knows my name. Um, I don't have an office, so often the co-op is my, my office away from my basement. Um, so I spend a lot of good time there. Okay, so uh, Broadway. Mm, dangerous for biking. <laughs> and you're, you bike a lot? Yeah, yeah, I try to. What's your experience been? Um, well, if I, ever, if I ever want to really get my heart rate going and get that cardio in, I just have to hop onto Broadway for a few, for a few minutes to really get that adrenaline going. <laughs> have you been hit or almost hit or anything like that? Um, you know, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time on my bike and I've never been hit. Um, however, my closest call did happen a few weeks ago. I, was, um, I lived down 2nd Street, which is kind of a, a notoriously bad street for, for cycling in Rochester. And... Um, uh, I was just going down the bicycle lane, and someone did a really quick illegal U-turn uh, with no blinker, cell phone, coffee, the whole nine yards, um, and uh, I, they were just coming to T-bone me, and they came into the bike lane a little bit, and I was able to pedal fast and hop out of the way, and they went on their way. Um, so that's the closest I have ever come, but I'm one of the few who, who thus far has managed to avoid a I've had some close calls too, but it's just good to kind of talk about that because I think people mm-hmm. forget that that's happening probably every day here. Um, because our, of our even in mm-hmm. even in bike lanes, um, when you don't have protected bike lanes, it makes it uh, yeah, easy yeah. to just do your U-turn right in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will say though that you know our friends in in the the bicycle advocacy organizations in town are doing a an amazing job of raising the level of awareness among both city officials, staff, um, as well as the general public that hey, bikes are here. Yeah. But more bikes on the road makes the road better for everyone because there's less traffic. Um, but we have some steps to go before it's really that that a uh, safe um, safe multimodal paradise that we want it to be. Sure. What 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 do you miss? You, so you've lived in other places mm-hmm. in the country. Um, what do you miss from other places that we don't have here? Mm. Um. Well, I've been uh I've been talking about this quite a bit. It's a for me. It comes down to food sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um. So New Jersey has some really, really rich food traditions. Um, from uh, it's it's often the first stop for for immigrants who come in, or is, especially historically Ellis Island. Or that's that's part of my family story at least. Um, so Jewish delis. Ooh. Oh man! And what makes them Fre- great? Fresh made bagels, uh, rye bread, and the things that those delis out there do with beef pastrami corned beef is just amazing um and there's not a lot of analogs out here especially for someone who grew up in like a family tradition of going there every you know sunday or yeah. whatnot um and if i could wax eloquent about new jersey meats a little bit more there's something called taylor ham which is uh made by the taylor ham company in trenton uh where i spent some time um and they don't distribute beyond really the tri-state area out there new, uh, P- uh pennsylvania new jersey new york um and it's just this it's kind of like Canadian bacon, but it's not. It's a little spicy, flavorful. You slice it, and then it comes out in a round, and you put it in a frying pan, and then you have to um, you have to cut notches in it so that the middle doesn't bubble up and it cooks okay. evenly. It's a very it's a very um, particular process that just about everyone in New Jersey knows, and uh, it's actually our state sandwich is the Taylor ham egg and cheese. Um, <laughs> So I have, uh, as summer is approaching us here, I've been thinking a lot about going down the shore in New Jersey uh, to get a Tallahassee egg and cheese as I walk mm-hmm. on a beach. It's a that's a very New Jersey thing that um, that's something I've you never can't known emulate about New out yeah. here. Yeah. yeah, but on the other hand, I, I am uh, uh, I am learning 
new things I really love about Rochester almost daily. Um, so for one thing, we have this amazing uh, Somali uh, population here that has this really, really great food culture that mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of. Um, so then that's something that was would have been completely foreign to me growing up. Where are some places you like to go there or here, I guess, for Somali food? Yeah. Um, There's one that I used to go to, but it closed. I, I'm not sure what's... Oh, sure. Yeah, there, there was that um, kebab place on Broadway that now is a Philly cheesesteak place. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was one that was on 3rd Avenue, mm-hmm. kind of across from Seneca. Mm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I haven't explored yeah. all the corners. That, that was a while ago. Yeah, and so, so I'll say we have a, a couple... You know, people say that we don't... We don't have um, a ton of independent coffee shops, uh, but we actually do. But a lot of them are owned by African immigrants uh, that we don't, uh, that a lot of uh, white folks just kind of pass by without seeing. Mm -hmm. So if you want some really great cups of coffee, uh, there's a couple of shops. Um, One is, I believe it's uh, on 7th Street. It's kind of where Bright Eyes Computing is and Planned Parenthood is across the street from that. There's one. Um, And there's another one next to that old Philly cheese, or what's become the Philly cheesesteak place. Um, and then I don't know if it's owned by a Somali family. I think I think they have a different um, uh, uh, country of origin. But there's a kebab place on um, I think it's Civic Center Drive. Is that Civic Center? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and they they I got to know them because they hosted some great um, like interreligious acti- um, activities where they just provided all this great free food yeah. um, in order to get people together to talk about, you know, our similarities, our differences, and just to to do the work of getting people who might not uh, get to know each other together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's become a staple for me, too. Well, that's great. Well, I really want to thank you for mm-hmm. coming today and, and talking with us. Is there anything else you'd want to add or... Um, well, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't make a plug. Our Sierra Club Summer Picnic is coming up. Oh, it's nice. uh, June 12th, so it's a couple Mondays from now at Silver mm-hmm. Lake Park. Um, there you can get another one of my favorite Minnesota traditions, hot dish. We always have a bunch of hot dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll have some vegetarian food. And it's um, we're going to talk a lot about what's happened in Rochester in terms of renewable energy and climate change and um There'll be a lot of ways for people to get involved in the movement for the next year. So if you want to go to that, you just show up or you have to bring something? Just or show up. Just it's, show a, up. it's a potluck. There's usually an overabundance of food, so yeah. don't feel stressed about that. But bring something to share. Um, and, and yeah, just show up. If you find us on Facebook, it's, uh, it's pegged to the top. Okay. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, thank you very much for coming and talking with me. And I appreciate it. And hopefully uh, um, you'll continue this great work. And I think it uh, sounds like June 5th is a big day. Uh, for one. the future, and uh, hopefully the city council will follow through on what their uh, advisory boards have suggested that they do. There you go. That's, That's not hope. always doesn't always happen, but hopefully <laughs> it will this time. So very good. Well, thank you, Sean. The pleasure is uh, all mine. Yeah, Thanks, all right. for Thanks, Rick. Me. Have a good day. <laughs>